Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Mountain lions are an incredibly charismatic animal on landscapes within and adjacent to the national park system, but they're seldom seen because of their nocturnal tendencies. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. There recently was a new report that focused on a comprehensive estimate of mountain lions in California, and the number is much smaller than many had thought it was. To discuss California's mountain lion population and efforts to protect that population, our guest today is Dr. Veronica Jovovich, a conservation scientist at Panthera, the global wildcat conservation organization. We'll be back in a minute with Dr. Jovovich. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Welcome to The Traveler, Veronica. Thank you. You know, it's great to have you here, and, and, and mountain lions are, you know, one of those charismatic megafauna that a lot of people seem really interested in, and, you know, this latest report that the the mountain lion population in California is not as big as people had thought it was, that that's kind of alarming. I mean, what what are the latest numbers? Yeah. So previously, um, people thought that the numbers were somewhere in the five thousand to seven thousand range, I believe, and it's been downgraded to between thirty two hundred and forty five hundred. So that's that's significantly lower than previous estimates that were based on habitat availability. And these new numbers are based on uh, much finer scale research. Has uh, the habitat decreased? Earlier, we thought that the the state of California had somewhere on the order of 6,000 mountain lions. And new research uh, suggests the number is actually closer to 3,200 to 4,500 mountain lions. So that's significantly lower than we previously thought. Is that primarily due to loss of habitat? Yeah. So a lot of that is because the previous model was based on habitat suitability. So Mm -hmm. the state researchers looked at the habitat that was available and estimated puma density according to how much space there was. Um, The new data that has come out more recently is much finer resolution. So they used a lot more nuanced tools to make that estimate. And probably there, well, certainly there's a lot less habitat available to mountain lions than there used to be. Yeah. So mountain lions need uh, large open spaces that are relatively free of human development. They're not wilderness obligates, but they need uh, open spaces with no development or very low density human development to survive. And so as our human population expands, which it is in California, it's growing quite a lot, uh, that shrinks the habitat that's available for mountain lions. 
Yeah, I was just wondering how adaptable they are. I mean, I live in, in northern Utah, um, the Park City area, and, and certainly, you know, there's lots of forest forested areas around uh, where we live. But, you know, in the wintertime, heavy snows, the deer come down, and there have been a number of people in the general vicinity where I live whose, um, you know, ring doorbells or their trail cameras have, have picked up uh, lions walking through their backyards past their front porches. Yeah, this is one of the really interesting things about uh, studying mountain lions now is it's really changed from how we used to do it a few decades ago. Because we have things like ring cameras and really good wildlife cameras, so those motion-sensitive camera traps that researchers deploy out in the field, we have a much better ability to observe and uh, interact indirectly with animals like mountain lions in ways that we couldn't in the past. And so it, in some ways, from a human perspective, it seems like the mountain lion population is growing because there's more people. So there's higher chances of people interacting with whatever mountain lions are out there because we have more sort of mountain lion detectors in these humans out on the landscape. And we have the ability to observe them when we aren't there with ring cameras and wildlife cameras. And so um, we have a lot more ability to interact, whether that's directly or indirectly. And those indirect detections and interactions are, are really increasing with, with the technology that we have to observe them. Now, on top of that, we also have social media. And so when anybody observes a mountain lion, you can uh, send that information around immediately. And so everybody vicariously has that indirect interaction. So those, those things combined um, make it seem like the population is really changing in a way that that the biology probably doesn't support. Yeah, interesting. California is a big state. Um, does, did that the latest research in calculating the population show any um, you know pockets where there are greater populations of lions than previously, or areas where the the populations have flattened out? I mean, you look across the Sierra Nevada or the Mojave Desert, you know. Right. So in the Mojave, um, they they didn't detect, there were, there were areas where they didn't detect any mountain lions. Um, but in other places, like Humboldt County, the population is actually doing quite well. Those are some of the, the higher areas for mountain lions. What about the, the Sequoia, Kings Canyon, Yosemite National Park areas? That's a good question. I'm sure that uh, the research would have something to say about that. I don't know specifically about those areas uh, based on my experience going to those places. I would say that there's good habitat for them there. So I would I would be surprised. And you know, you've got those large protected areas that should make it even better habitat for mountain lions. So they, they should do pretty well there. I wonder if you would run into to problems with... Um... Overlap of territories and interspecies aggression. Yeah, and in places where the mountain lion population is doing really well, you'll start to see some self-regulation in the population where territories will butt up against one another and um, and you can see conspecific strife. So mountain lions fighting other mountain lions, or you can see things like infanticide where a male comes in and kills off his neighboring male's offspring or um, you'll see decreases in, in birth rates. And that's how mountain lions uh, equilibrate their population with what the habitat can actually hold. 
Yeah, yeah. Interesting stuff. Um, now, you'd mentioned earlier that, you know, part of the problem is loss of habitat, human population. We keep spreading out and ruining all these beautiful places. What, what about natural disasters like the, the recent wildfires that have been in the news in California in the past two or three years? Are, are they detrimental to lion habitat or do the lions just cope with it? That's a very good question. Uh, on an evolutionary timescale, mountain lions did co-evolve with forest fire. They, they live in a lot of different environments where fire is a natural part of the system. And so they have tools to deal with fires. And some of those tools could be shifting their habitat use to move into an area that's not currently burning while a fire burns through another part of their home range. Sometimes they'll move out of their home range altogether and go to a place that's safer. Um, or they can dodge the fire on a micro scale as it burns through. Now, with fire as it is now, we have these giant mega fires, which is not what they evolved for. So certainly that can be really detrimental to them in a bunch of different ways. It can displace them into areas that aren't burning where people live. And then you can see an increase in human wildlife conflict. Or it can burn important resources that their prey need. And so there's there's definitely repercussions. They can also be in the path of the fire themselves and mm-hmm. and perish that way. Um, we've Unfortunately, we've seen, this is getting a little grim, but we've seen pumas that um, have walked through burned areas and will burn their paws right. and right, be I've injured that, that way. And it's it's definitely, it's a very different environment from how they evolved and definitely causes problems for them. Now, when you're, you're talking about a drop in, in population of an apex predator, how does that affect the, the, the food chain, so to speak, downhill? I mean, uh, in Yellowstone, you go back to the early 1900s and um, wolves are bad and grizzly bears are bad and we're going to kill them out. And um, part of the response was, you know, burgeoning elk herds or burgeoning, you know, mule deer herds. H- have we seen any of that? Related to the mountain lion um, population decrease in California? Yeah, it hasn't been studied quite so clearly as the the Yellowstone model. But there was a paper that was published just a couple of years ago that explored lots of different ecological implications for uh, for mountain lion loss. You know, the a lot of different it explored a lot of different biological relationships that center around mountain lion activity. And so you see some of the same the same issues that we've seen in Yellowstone where mountain lions influence their their prey and the there are influences that trickle down through the environment. Um, some of my dissertation work looked at how humans displace mountain lions and that influences where deer browse. And what we saw was that deer spend more time in places with humans using humans as a shield against predation. And browse down the plants uh, in those human adjacent areas, and that can actually change the plant architecture. So plants that grow farther away from humans, um, where there's more puma activity, more mountain lion activity, are less browsed, and so they grow uh, longer and uh, more sort of attenuated, like mm-hmm. taller. Whereas plants near humans where the pumas have been uh, displaced and the deer browse more, 
are stumpier with uh, denser branches because they have higher herbivory pressure. The deer are browsing on them more um, and and stunting their growth. And for people who um, who live in those those areas with uh, with deer, like the urban wildland adjacent areas, have probably noticed sort of pyramid shaped bushes um, where they're heavily browsed by deer. Or sometimes you can notice on oak trees. Well, there'll be a line about six feet tall where all the branches under six feet tall have been browsed off. And then the tree grows um, as, as a tree normally would above that browse line. That's pretty interesting. You know, I'm going to mention a book. You've probably heard about it being in, in Fort Collins, um, Beast in the Garden. Um, it, it's probably been a decade or so since it came out. It, it was a um, case study out of Boulder, Colorado, I believe, where... You know, you had all these homeowners and they wanted beautiful gardens and trees and vegetation. And so they planted all this stuff. And, of course, that brought the the deer down into the boulder neighborhoods. And where the prey is, the predator will follow. And so you had mountain lion, at least one mountain lion come down and uh, a young teenager was killed, unfortunately, um, while out on a, a training run. Are we seeing that in, in California? You know, we're talking about um, a decrease in habitat. And so are, are they coming down in, uh, across that urban interface, that wild urban interface into urban areas? This is another really interesting question. And um, there's a research group out of UC Santa Cruz that's studying just that. Uh, so this uh, group at UC Santa Cruz is looking at human mountain lion interactions in the Bay Area and um, whether we can use behavioral modification to segregate human activity and mountain lion activity. And what I mean by that is they're studying space use, puma space use in uh, open space preserves, so protected habitat, and um, and whether they can use uh, adversive conditioning to encourage pumas to use areas away from high human activity areas. So what they're doing is they're trying to um, to train the mountain lions to stay away from places that people frequent. Sure. Um, because that is something that we're wondering about. There are, you know, in general, you don't see a lot of human mountain lion interactions, right? It's, it's very different from others. They are very different from other species. Like you can go to Yellowstone and see wolves. You can see grizzlies, elk, bison, all sorts of critters. But there's really nowhere in the U.S. where you can go and view mountain lions, right? They're a much more cryptic species in general. Hmm. So there, um, they, there are places, there are very small hotspots where you do tend to see a bit more human mountain lion interactions. Boulder is one of those places. There's some areas in Southern California where there have been a couple uh, incidents with mountain lions. And there's a spot in the Bay Area where there have been a couple incidents. It's not a ton, um, but there have been more than you would expect and more than you see in other places. And so what yeah. they're studying is is whether there's tools, whether what, what kinds of tools we can use to train mountain lions to stay away from people, basically. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I digress a, a bit, uh, but a year and a half, two years ago, uh, we were down in northern New Mexico working on some stories, and we got into the Santa Fe National Forest after sundown, and we were driving to a campground. This was late uh, 
October, early November, and a mountain lion walked in front of our car. It was just uh, pretty cool. You don't see that too often. You um, don't. And I, so I do get to hear a lot of mountain lion sighting stories, uh, working on mountain lions. You definitely pull those out of people. Um, and most of the stories go the same way where somebody saw a mountain lion. They weren't sure what it was until they saw the tail until they saw the back end because the mountain lion was running away from them. And yeah. that is how the vast majority of interactions go. It's, you know, they are cats. And so they are inherently idiosyncratic, but most of the interactions end with the mountain lion running away. And actually there was a, a research project done years ago by two Puma researchers who worked on, on mountain lions uh, all over the American West and they had a lot of close encounters where they were tracking mountain lions. And so they were able to document their experiences cheating, right? They had callers on the mountain lions and they were hiking mm. to them to see what they were up to, to, to do their research. And they were able to document something like uh, 281 close quarters interactions with human groups ranging from two to eight. And what they found was the vast majority of the time, the puma ran away. Yeah. Um, there were sometimes when the the puma did, you know, the sort of cat thing where it's just sat there and looked at them, right? In that <laughs> that same way that your house cat will do. Um, but in no, in none of those interactions did they get attacked, right? The, there's the chances of getting attacked are very, very low. Even if the cat doesn't run away, which is what's going to happen most of the time, usually it just sort of sits there and looks at you until you make an exit. Yeah, yeah. Well, in our situation, it just kind of walked across the road, right, you know, in front of us, had a collar on, we could see that, and saw a long tail, and he just disappeared into the forest. Very cool, very cool sighting. This is Kurt Rappencheck with National Parks Traveler. We're talking today with Dr. Veronica Jovovich, a conservation scientist at Panthera, the global wildcat conservation organization. We're talking about mountain lions in California and recent studies that show a decline in population. We're going to take a short break, and I'll be right back. Listener and reader support make the National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation at nationalparkstraveler.org. Gear up for 2024 with Interior Federal Credit Union. Synchronize all your accounts in one place with their tool, Money Management. Money Management allows you to create budgets to fit your lifestyle, set up goals for the future, monitor your account and loan balances with one login, track debt, and more. Apply for membership at interiorfcu.org and sign up for digital banking to get started. Federally insured by NCUA. So, Veronica, um, in terms of the decline in California, is any of it related to, to livestock predation where, you know, the, the rancher, the farmer, you know, is trying to protect his, his herds? Yeah, certainly that is a big issue for mountain lions. So in California, up until recently, um, well, I should back up. So uh, Californians decided to protect mountain lions, even though mountain lions are designated a least concerned species. So they're, they're common. Um, they're not threatened. Californians valued having an apex predator on their landscape and wanted to make sure that mountain lions remained in perpetuity. So they passed Prop 117 that protected mountain lions and removed our, or made it so that we couldn't hunt them, so that it's illegal to, to shoot them for any reason unless they 
threaten your personal safety or the safety of your livestock and companion animals. Um, now, within that, there's that space made for livestock producers who need to protect their their livestock. And people do use the, the those permits, that, that permission uh, to protect their livestock. And on average, about 100 pumas are killed every year under what's called those depredation permits. Uh, now, in 2020, I believe, the Center for Biological Diversity and a bunch of other groups petitioned for mountain lions to receive protected status. And once that petition was submitted, um, they received basically endangered species protections in certain distinct population segments in California. So in the Santa Ana Mountains and the Santa Monica Mountains, and the Santa Cruz Mountains, those areas were identified as places where the population is shrinking and in danger of going locally extinct. And so right, in those areas, yeah, that yeah, for they they tied that specifically to the Southern California population. That's right. right. Um, and so those areas get special protections now. And um, so in those areas, the strategy is to help prevent conflict before it happens. Really, which we should be doing any, anywhere that mountain lions and livestock coexist, right? Um, yeah. But there's a special focus in those areas. So, what's being done to to help the the livestock producers protect their livestock from the mountain lions? There's some neat research projects that are popping up to help uh, the state agency have science based information to give to livestock producers. So not a lot of research has been done on livestock protection and mountain lions specifically. So um, we've got our new panthera-based uh, research project called Bay Clip, the Bay Area Carnivore Livestock Interactions Project, that is focused on the Central Coast and is testing different livestock protection tools to help ranchers know what tools are effective and what contacts they're effective and how to best deploy them so that when the California Department of Fish and Wildlife folks go in after, um, maybe after there's been an incident or if for a livestock producer that's concerned about livestock protection issues, and we can help arm them with good information uh, to help those producers most effectively. And we also uh, work with, with uh, extension to get the, the message out to uh, relevant livestock producers. I believe there there's some new tools that have come out, um, fox lights and, and turbo flaudry installations. What, what yeah, are those? Uh, these are, are some, some of the promising tools. Livestock guardian dogs are a very old tool um, that seem to be very effective. And then there's new tools like fox lights. So these are these devices um, that, as the name would suggest, were developed to reduce fox predation, but may work on other species as well. It's a light that you set out um, out. In your grazing areas, you can put them on the perimeter of your fence and have a string of like multiple lights set up. And they go on at dusk, so at sundown, um, and are active all night until the sun comes back up again, which is, of course, when carnivores are most active. And they flash randomly colored lights in random directions at random intervals. And the idea here is that carnivores in general don't like novel environments. They don't like new things. Mm. And so this light is a completely foreign, new, unpleasant stimulus that uh, that discourages them from, from coming into a certain area. 
And the Turbo Fladre, what is that? The Turbo Fladre is also a new twist on a very old tool. It's a a line of polywire, um, like a cord of polywire that's electrified with these flags that hang down, these rectangular flags at regular intervals. I think it, it's around 11 inches between between flags. And they flap in the breeze and, again, create that sort of novel, unpleasant psychological barrier. And the, the cord itself is electrified. So if a puma or a coyote um, decides to test, they get used to the flags themselves and they decide to test that boundary and they explore the world in general, sort of nose first, then they'll mm-hmm. be um, they'll get a, a non-injurious, but unpleasant shock um, when they try and investigate that flagery. And this is, it's actually, it's an interesting story because it's a really old tool that used to be used for wolf hunting in Europe. And what they would do is they'd string up flagery that wasn't electrified, just plain old flagery, and they'd funnel wolves through um, and then as the wolves came out the, the funnel end, they would kill them. And so it's a neat tool that's been turned on its head, and now it's being used to protect wolves and livestock. Is one more effective than the other, the, the fox lights versus the, the flood ray installations? That's exactly what our research is trying to figure out. I have a feeling that, that tools that, um, that actually deliver a, a penalty for trespass, so like the turbo flattery has that electrified you know, unpleasant component will probably be more effective than something like a flashing light. But, uh, but that's one of the things we're, we're going to figure out uh, with, with this research project. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, although I wonder, um, will you have to deal with uh, breaks in the line? I know. My, yeah. My every tool, Ray, every tool have its own limitations, its own investment that you have to make, you know, whether that's financial or time, you know, time setting up in the first place and maintaining it, they, they all have their own benefits and drawbacks. And really the best, um, the best protected livestock will probably have some sort of combination of tools or tools that rotate through because carnivores are out there 24 seven and they're, they're very smart and, um, and they learn uh, about what what's going on in their landscapes? So you'll probably have to shift things on them so that they don't get too used to any one tool. Yeah, yeah. Now a little earlier, you'd mentioned um, about the the cat population in the Santa Monica and the Santa Ana Mountains, and you know the projection that if nothing is done, that um, there's a one in four chance that the mountain lions could be extinct in those areas. Um, do we know exactly? Or close to exactly how many mountain lions are in the, the Santa Monica Mountains population? I'm not sure. Um, the researchers who work down in that area specifically probably have a pretty good idea of what that number is, but I'm afraid I don't know what that is. Yeah, I know there's been a lot of concern in, in recent years, um, in part because of uh, the wildfires that have swept through the Santa Monica Mountains um, and the, the NRA down there, the National Recreation Area. But of course, uh, the presence of the 101 freeway that comes down there and, and the impediment it um, poses for, for lions trying to um, explore new territories or, or just move about in, in the, the surrounding territories. Yeah, the, the mountain lions living in Southern California have multiple threats, right? So they've got habitat loss from development. They've got um, a lot of high-speed uh, hard to cross roads that crisscross uh, a lot of Southern California. 
they've got wildfires and those those mega fires that pose a threat. They also have um, there's a lot of rodenticide down there, right. which right. is a huge threat. And so with with all of those multiple threats going on, you see pockets of mountain lions that are becoming isolated from one another from, from one another and suffer from inbreeding depression. Right. So there's there's a lot of different forces working against mountain lions in Southern California. Yeah. Any prediction on, on how the, the Wallace Annenberg Wildlife Crossing Wildlife Bridge over the 101 will um, impact lion populations in that area? I mean, there's there's lots of millions of dollars going into building that. Um, at the same time, there's that one in four chance that the, the cats could be extinct in 50 years. Would that wildlife bridge um, be a big help to, to lion populations down in that region? It could make all the difference. It could make all the difference between extinction and perseverance. So in general, um, it doesn't actually take that much gene flow to keep a population viable. Um, I don't know what the exact number for that is in Southern California, but um, for other places, it's been something on the order of one animal uh, moving between populations and sex- and successfully reproducing every couple years. Right. Mm-hmm. It's it it doesn't need to be it doesn't need to create a whole new wildlife highway to make a huge difference. So I would think that 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 wildlife crossing structure could be a, a wonderful boon to the population there. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to to see how that goes. Can we cross the country to, to southern Florida and, and talk for just a few minutes about the, the Florida Panther situation down there? Sure. You know, I know it's it's been a great problem for for many years. Uh, you could go back to when they were so concerned about inbreeding problems that they brought in some mountain lions or cougars, depending on your vernacular, from Texas to to help improve the gene flow. But ever since then, the population has you know been kind of hanging around two hundred individuals, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. The Fish and Wildlife Service has never really designated critical habitat in South Florida for for Florida panthers. We've got road collisions that are killing um, the panthers every year. There's some interspecies aggression because the the habitat is so squeezed. Can can you tell us anything about the outlook for the Florida panther? Yeah, the the main way that I use the the Florida panther in my own work uh, in California is as a cautionary tale. Um, so the Florida panther is is a really interesting case study because this is a population of mountain lions that was always there. It's not a reintroduced population, it's a remnant population. And it's become more and more and more isolated. Uh, mountain lions used to be widespread across the entirety of the US. And that is, uh, is their only population that remains uh, in the East Coast. And the nearest neighboring population is actually in Texas. And like you mentioned, when uh, the population had gotten down to, I think, around 100 individuals and was really suffering from inbreeding depression, so the the buildup of unfortunate genes in that sm- small population, they were seeing um, health issues like kinked tails and heart defects and uh, defective sperm. And so they brought uh, a puma in from the closest population from Texas, let her have a couple litter of, of kittens, and that was enough to um, to sort of reset the genetic the net, genetic stock in in Florida and and help rescue that population. 
but um but yeah i mean what it really needs is to be a part of a connected neighboring population in order to be able to to really survive and be self uh perpetuating in perpetuity so that the population really it is quite small and um and that cautionary tale element is is a parallel for what could happen in these populations in California. So in the Santa Cruz Mountains or the Santa Anas or the Santa Monicas, you can look to Florida for what happens when the population gets isolated like that. As for the Florida population itself, it's going to take a lot of management in order to to keep those critters on the map. Right, right. You know, we're talking about expansion of uh, territory or connecting two different populations. It wasn't too many years ago, I believe, um, that the... um, Eastern Mountain Lion in the you know New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York area, I believe, was declared extinct. That no longer existed. And so, while from time to time there are dispersers from that Florida panther um, population going north, there's nothing up there for them to go to. Yeah, and so this is this is somewhat encouraging that the the eastern front of the western population of mountain lions does seem to be expanding east, right? So we're seeing more individuals uh, leave the Western population and strike out out east to see what they can find. Um, And uh, and the population could potentially recover itself. It could recolonize on its own as long as we we don't get in their way, basically. we at Panthera, we published a paper recently that identified habitat patches on the East Coast that would be suitable for mountain lion recolonization. So these are areas that are sufficiently large to have a population, a self-sustaining uh, population for some period of time. There's sufficient prey. There's low enough human density. And by, by that, I mean roads and houses and livestock and there are actually quite a number of uh, of good habitat patches that, if mountain lions could make their way east, um, could potentially set up populations and and recolonize the east, which would be very exciting. Yeah. yeah. Are there lions moving down from Canada into the New England or northern New York areas? They they could. There are a bunch of different places where they could move from uh, from neighboring populations. And up from Canada is an option from the the Black Hills is where some of those dispersing individuals have come from. Um, anywhere along the, that eastern front, there are places where mountain lions could make their way uh, back into the Midwest and East Coast. Now, here's the devil's advocate question. Why do we need panthers? Why, why should uh, we be concerned about mountain lion populations? Yeah, and that's a very fair question. And there's lots of different answers depending on on your sensibility. So one is that animals have an intrinsic right to exist, and um, and and that in its own right should be enough. Also, they play a really important ecological role in regulating prey numbers and uh, all the trickle down effects that happen from their interactions with other species. So um, if we want to get into the nitty gritty of it. When uh, so pumas can help regulate prey, uh, and we've seen what happens when you remove all of the apex carnivores on the east coast, right? You mm-hmm. see that deer populations go through the roof, and right. we're seeing a lot more automobile collisions with people. So there's a, a human safety issue there that mountain lions could help with. There's also disease issues that 
um, because of the, the different interactions between mountain lions and their prey and the species that they compete with. So with coyotes and, um, and how those relationships play out, where we're seeing um, higher incidence of things like Lyme disease that we can trace back to losing those apex carnivores. So mm -hmm. there's, there's some selfish reasons that we should want mountain lions on the landscape for our own personal safety as well as preserving uh, important ecological relationships. Yeah. Is climate change in the, the Southwest particularly um, impacting the lines? I'm just wondering with the, the hotter temperatures, um, certainly the drought that the, the Southwest has been in for the last 20 years or so. Yeah, mountain lions um, are one of the most, they are the most widely distributed mammal in the Western Hemisphere. So they range historically, they range all the way from about halfway through Canada, all the way down to the southern tip of South America. And they occupy most types of habitats within that huge range. So, um, so mountain lions don't make a great poster child for climate change or the impacts of climate change in general, but at the extremes, we, we do expect that we would see uh, some, some negative impacts of climate change. So desert environments are, are certainly one of those where mountain lions uh, historically have existed in low population density, but with, with droughts, we could expect that we might lose them from those areas where their prey are being affected, and so they can't they can't survive. Um, and you know, like we were talking about earlier with megafires, um, that's going to play a role. They're also limited by snow depth, so as snow patterns change, that could influence where mountain lions can live. Now, that's just looking at the biology, but when you layer in and you factor in climate change with human wildlife conflict that's where we could see real issues with mountain lions being able to persist because mm -hmm. um, climate change is going to influence their habitat use on a, a local scale that could drive them into places where they have increased conflict with people. And that can reduce, that can really dramatically reduce their population. Sure. Sure. I'm wondering if, if warmer temperatures are impacting the cats. I mean, we're talking about mountain lions, but also, in the news recently, there have been uh, reports of jaguars coming up um, from Mexico into um, southern Texas, I think, in Arizona. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so warmer temperatures can have a, a lot of different influences. And depending on if you're talking about like warmer temperatures, temperatures causing droughts, like in the southwest, that can certainly play a role. Uh, warmer temperatures can also expand the range of mountain lion competitors. So uh, if jaguars expand their range into places where uh, jaguars haven't been before, um, they could you could see competition between those two species that could change the population dynamics. Definitely something to watch for. It'd be interesting. That's Dr. Veronica Jovovich from uh, Panthera, a global wildcat conservation organization, talking uh, about mountain lions across the country. Veronica, it's been great to have you today. I really appreciate your insights and look forward to see how some of those uh, um, tools out in California um, help mountain lion populations. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That's our show for this week. We hope you found it interesting. The next time you're in a national park in the West or South Florida or Texas, keep your eyes peeled right around sunrise or sundown to see if you might spot one of these big cats. Next week, 
we're discussing the ongoing recovery work with giant sequoia forests in Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks with the Executive Director of the Sequoia Parks Conservancy. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.